What's up, everybody? This is Les Edwins from the Les Edwins Show. Some of you know me. Some of you don't. Hopefully, the ones that don't will get to know me. But you know what? This is my first podcast. I don't even know what I'm doing, man. But you know what? I think I just want to talk a little bit because some of you folks, you really don't know how I got started in this crazy thing we call music business. Yes, it is a crazy business, and those that are in it will be able to vouch for that. I can tell you that right now. But let me tell you, just tell me something. I was born on July 7th. What am I talking about, 7th? You know why I said 7th? <laughs> because I'm on the 7th month of July. That's right. Well, you know, July is the 7th month, so I'm just sounding crazy because right now I'm just trying to figure out what I'm doing. But that's okay. I'm going to make mistakes. I was born 7 23 I was a July baby. And I came from a large musical family, which was started by my father, the late Chuck Edwards. Most of you know him from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Everybody knew my pops in Pittsburgh. Man, bullfight, downtown Soulville, just for a day, if I were king. Hell, my dad even showed George Benson, who's a family friend of ours, some guitar licks, man. George Benson will tell you, man, everybody called my dad thumping Chuck. I mean, he was thumping Thumping Chuck Edwards, y'all. Well, anyways, and along with Mama Irene Edwins, who sings, uh, our parents, man, certainly put all of my brothers and my sister into the music thing. And it's not so much my sister. She kind of got into just, you know, being a mom and all that kind of stuff, you know. But me and my brother certainly uh, turned out to be musicians, you know, in our own rights. You know, but let me just tell you how to start it. I really wasn't really... You know, when I was about three or four, you know, I wasn't really even thinking about music or nothing like that. I was a baby, man. But you know what I was doing? I was digging on flour. (laughs) That's right. I used to sit on the kitchen floor and get in the cabinets, man, and dig into my mom's pantry there and, you know, and dig out the big flour bowl. And I used to just munch on flour. Man, I was covered in flour. I'm telling my mom, when when she finally found me, I was covered in flour, man, but I was, man, I was chewing up on that flour, man. It was so good. I don't know what I liked about flour. Maybe I should have been a baker. I don't know, man, because I was eating up the flour, man. But that was my thing. And my brother, Ron, my oldest brother, man, he was digging on newspapers, man. I'm serious, man. He was digging on newspapers. He would tear newspapers apart and eat them. I don't know what it is. I mean, he should have been, you know, a journalist, man, or something like that. You know, I should have been a baker, and he should have been a journalist, man, because he was tearing up some newspapers, man. But that's what we were about when we were little kids. But somehow, I got attracted to the sound of drums somewhere. I'm not even sure, but as a little boy, something fascinated me about the drums, you know. And so what I would do as I got a little bit older, around, you know, five or something like that, I would start tearing up my mom's bacon pans. Yeah, man. I would take forks and spatulas or whatever I can use for drumsticks, man, and I would just be tearing up her bacon pans. So every time she cooked a, you know, she baked a cake, she'd flip it upside down and have lumps on it. <laughs> you know, I'm talking about lumps, man. I'm talking about them pan, you know, them, them, them cakes look like Frankenstein, man. I ain't lying. <laughs> Nuts and lumps and craters, man. And so moms and pops finally got tired of me tearing up all of her bacon pans and stuff like that so they called themselves get me a set of drums man and they went somewhere in Pittsburgh Pennsylvania which is you know uh about 25 miles we're from you know we're from Washington I was born in Washington but a lot of people would relate to us being from Pittsburgh at least that's what I tell people because 
who knows where Washington is except all my relatives back there, my close relatives, you know, the Gibbs family. You know, the Gibbs, man, those are my first cousins, man, and my Aunt Mag, man, all those. Man, I love my family back there, man. You know, and, and like I say, man, um, they wouldn't know where Washington is, but a lot of you folks may not know Washington, Pennsylvania, but that's where I was actually born. And my sister was the only one that was born in Pittsburgh out of all of us kids, the five of us. But anyways, my parents went up to Pittsburgh to some music store, and they bought me a toy set of drums. And even at five years old, I was kind of like, man, are you kidding me? Because I was already going through baking pans, man. So what do you think these toy drums are going to do? You think they're going to hold up? I don't think so. <laughs> so anyways, here I get on these drums, and I tear the things up in less than two or three days, man. And holes in every paper drum head and everything, man. So my parents are like, man. We got to get this kid, you know, a real set of drums. In the meantime, before they got me a set of real drums, I started making my own drums. Yeah, I was five years old and smart enough to figure out how to make my own set of drums. So what I did, I get a hanger, bend the hanger and, and get some kind of tape and a little, some paper, make a ball out of the paper, and then wrap it up with tape and somehow stick it on the uh, hanger. And that would, that would be my kick pedal. Then I would get a box. That would be my kick drum, and then I would get another couple of boxes, and that would be my snare and my toms, and, that's, and, I, and I would just sit there and, and, and get me, you know, the little drumsticks that my, you know, my dad used to make drumsticks for me, believe it or not, because he worked at the steel mill, and somehow he was down there making drumsticks. I mean, he made them good, man. I mean, he, man, he was making them just like the stores, you know, so he made me some drumsticks, and I would tear up my boxes and stuff like that, and then they finally said, okay, well, all right, he, he just tore up the first little toy set we bought him, so we're going to go ahead and get him a real set of drums. And that is where things actually changed for me because now I had a sturdy set of drums. You know, I was this wild kid on the drums banging up and things, and these drums could hold up. So that's how I really was able to hone in my craft of playing drums. I didn't take no lessons or nothing like that. I was just listening to, you know, records and things that my dad, you know, had around the house playing. And, of course, my dad had a band, and, Periodically, they would rehearse at the house, so I got a chance to, you know, study the drummer. You know, so from that point on, as I got older, like about six years old, one, one night my dad's drummer, because my dad had a band. He was really popular, Chuck Edwards, man. And, you know, and he, he was playing all over the Pittsburgh area, man. Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, I'm talking about. And, man, one night his drummer got sick. And who do you think that they called? Not Ghostbuster. <laughs> I ain't, they didn't call the Ghostbuster, man. They called me. That's right. My dad said, hey, I'm going to bring my son to fill in for the drummer. Now, you got to remember something. These guys were like 21, 22. I thought these guys were old, ancient, old men. They looked like old men to me, but they were actually young kids, man. You know, you know, well, young adolescents at that age. But to me, being six years old, they looked like a bunch of old guys, man. I was scared to death. I'm serious. I don't think I've ever been scared to death to play on a set of drums with a real band. I mean, you got to be kidding me. I'm six years old. And I'm supposed to be playing blues and funk, man. You know, and I really haven't had a chance to really rehearse with anybody or play with anybody or nothing like that. Just practicing at the house, just banging away. You know, I wasn't really playing anything particular. I was just banging away and just learn how to, you know, play drums. So anyways, my dad had a gig up in Pittsburgh somewhere. I can't remember. I think it was in uh, New Kensington, somewhere in that area. And lo and behold, here I am, a little six-year-old guy, sitting behind a set of drums with all these so-called 
old guys, but they're young, 21 and 22-year-old guys. And I'm going to tell you right now, man, I was holding it down, dude. <laughs> I was holding it down, man. I mean, you would not believe that I was that good to actually keep a beat with a professional band of professional musicians, man. And I can remember that because I was so young, I couldn't actually stay in the club during the break time. So back east, a lot of the clubs have kitchens, you know, and they have these you know, these sisters back there, man, cooking. I'm talking about, you know, they'd be back there sweating in the can on and these big sisters back there, man, tearing it up. I mean, I'm talking about cooking it up. And I would be taken to the kitchen during the breaks. And these 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 ladies back there, man, they would be feeding me chicken and potatoes and corn and stuff like that. And I was happy as a clam. I was like, I can, I can stay back here. Just keep me back here. I eat all night. And that's how they kept me because of the age situation. And then when it was time to play, my dad would come back to get me, and I'd go back and do another set, and then, you know, and so forth, you know, and I'd go back in the kitchen, you know, until the night was over. But I would say that was my first professional gig. And I'm going to tell you right now, man, that was like a, an experience for me, really, as a young kid, not knowing what the heck I was doing, scared to death. I mean, really, it's something like, it's really something to be sitting behind a set of drums the first time for your very first gig, and you're like, you know, you're you're like, <laughs> you're scared to to death, man. <laughs> I mean, you know, everything you're thinking about as a little kid, like, what if I make a mistake? What if I'm not keeping time? What if, you know, you know, everything is on you. You're freaking out, man, because you're like, man, I'm scared to begin with to even be playing with these guys. But you know what? I made it at six years old. That was my first gig. Then my brothers started playing their perspective instruments. You know, Jeff was on the guitar. Somehow he decided that guitar was something that he wanted to do. Myron, you know, he played the bass. I don't really know or remember how he got into that, but he got into the bass. Ron was actually trying to play trumpet, but I think because his lips were getting so fat and big, I think that that really turned him off, man. I think that that was, that, 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 you know, I think he gave it up, man, because you got to have this armature when you're blowing a horn and when you're learning, it makes your lips swell up. So his lips look like Donald Duck, man. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I'm talking about quack, quack, quack. His look like Don Donald Duck, man. And I'm talking about, <laughs> he's like, I, I ain't with this program, man. So somehow he just said, you know, forget the trombone. I'm going to do the keyboards, man. And that's how Ron got into the keyboards. So if we fast forward it up to we're actually able to play something together. Well, my dad, you know, being the perfectionist that he was because he was a professional musician with a professional band that was very, very, very popular. Plus he had records out and all that kind of good stuff and had been on labels like Duke Records and Atlanta Records and you know, various other record labels. See, he was already hip to the game and you know, he was already hip to what it took to become professional. So he kind of honed his professionalism on us, you know, in rehearsal. So we ended up started rehearsing with my dad on these standards and things like that. And I have to be honest with you. And as I look, as I'm older now, I have to say that, you know, it was probably, I don't know, I'm, I'm really kind of saddened that I didn't think back then what I'm thinking now. But back then I hated those jazz songs. And I hated those blues songs. And I just wanted to play something that was more funky you know, like we were hearing James Brown and all those kind of people, you know, that kind of stuff. But my dad was really into uh, more so the bluesy, jazzy type of thing. And I hated it, you know, especially rehearsing. And as a kid, 
trust me, <laughs> as a kid, that is, is dreadful, especially if you don't like what you're playing. But however, my dad would be on me and my brother so tough. And I always hear the stories about the Jacksons dad, but I have to say, I kind of refer my dad and, and kind of like that, you know, except, you know, we didn't, you know, you know, some of the things that they say about the Jacksons, I can't really say are true or not, but I mean, we never got into the physical part of his anger when we didn't get things right. But we, I can tell you right now, we took the wrath of his, his verbal, you know, her verbal abuse boy. And I mean, I can say for sure that there was good reason for it. But when you're a kid, you know, man, you don't understand some, some, some grown adult, your father not hollering at you because you can't get a beat right or you can't get a, 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 a vocal part right or you can't get a bridge or a channel or you can't get an intro right. I mean, he would be honest, man. I mean, to the point that we were crying. I spent, a, I dropped a lot of tears, man, in rehearsals, man. I hated it for one, you know, scared to death, man, for getting yelled at for if something didn't get right. You know, and as soon as we had, all right, let's try it again. All right, this time to get it right. Let's, let's try it. And one, two, three. When you heard that count, you're like, oh, please, God, please let me get it right this time. Because Pops had us over there dropping tears, boys. But I can tell you right now, like I said earlier, as I'm older now, I mean, I have to appreciate that we were just maybe just too young to understand and that learning jazz and learning blues, you know, was the... Uh, footnote to anything else you play trust me i can tell all the youngsters out there that might be listening learn jazz learn blues country you know rock and roll funk anything every anything and everything you can learn and by all means you know go get some lessons and learn how to read which is something i did not do which to this day that i'm not too happy about but then i can still play it's just that i can't read drum notes but Hey, it is what it is, you know, but I, I can pass that along to the youngsters that are just starting out. Do learn some, you know, chart reading and things like that and take some lessons of periodicals and, you know, those kind of things. Get some drum lessons so you can have some technical aspect of uh, playing drums. Everything I did, I was self-taught, you know, so. But, yeah, man, so, so with our father being on us so hard, we actually got really good because we were made to be good, you know? And so me and my brothers would take our little instruments out there, you know, and, you know, I would take like a snare or something like that and in the stand, and my brothers would take their, you know, my brothers had some acoustic, like my brother Jeff had an acoustic guitar and, and you know, Ron had like a tambourine or something like that, and Myron, and we actually would go around Cannonsburg, by the way, is where we was living. That's my home step, baby, hometown. Cannonsburg, PA. And we would go around to neighborhood Hofbras. Now, back there, we had things called the Hofbra, you know. And uh, I would guess I would probably, I would compare it to uh, like a Veterans Hall or VFW or something like that. And we would go around three or four of these places and play for these patrons that were in there drinking and whatnot. And they would let us little runts come in there with our little instruments because we would brag and say how good we were. And they'd say, well, come on in here and play some songs, kids, and see how you're doing. Well, you know, by the end of the day, we have about $5, man. And I'm going to tell you right now, back in that time, <laughs> you know, back in that time, you know, hey, 
1970 and 69 and whatever it was, 68, whatever. I'm going to tell you right now, $5 went a long way. We would take that $5 and go to the neighborhood supermarket or the neighborhood store, and we would buy a ton of candy, man, from $5, man. I'm talking about we would have so much candy. You know, it was like we were rich from $5, man, seriously. And that is kind of how we got into the music thing. But like I said, we would rehearse and rehearse and rehearse. And then as time moved on a little bit, you know, we started getting little gigs with my dad. You know, we started playing around the Pittsburgh area. We would play at the Encore on Liberty Avenue in Pittsburgh. And we would play on the Gateway Clipper boat for the proms, you know, during the summertime. And, you know, we would do that on Wednesday nights. You know, we had a kind of a permanent thing there for a while. You know, every every summer for the proms and whatnot, you know, we would go in uh, uh, on the Allegheny River on the Gateway Clipper, you know. And so we would be playing, you know, gigs like that and stuff like that. And then um, in between being, you know, musicians and stuff, we were being kids, you know. <laughs> you know, we wanted to be mischievous like all other kids, you know. So we'd go out there and be neighborhood brats. I don't think my mom and dad really knew about the things that we were doing. <laughs> like most kids don't tell their parents. But I can tell you what, we would go out there, man, and run around the neighborhood, man, somewhere around 8 o'clock or something like that. Now, around this time, my brothers, my oldest brothers, Jeff and Ron and Myron, they were, you know, they were sliding into the, you know, early teens. And I was sliding into, you know, maybe nine, somewhere around or nine years old or something. And they would take me around. And I was actually, you know, <laughs> hey, man, I was actually the, the slave for everybody, as I would say, you know. I was the, I was, I was, I was the, 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 the chump for the kids, you know. I, you know, every, every, every group of kids that you hang around with, there's always one chump. Whether it's the brother of somebody or whatever it might be or just a friend, there's always a chump that everybody makes do something. Well, that was me. You know what I mean? You can you guys relate to that, man? You who was the chump out of all your friends? That everybody make you do everything. Well, anyways, we would go around the neighborhood and we would go in people's yards and gardens, you know, and we would steal their tomatoes, man. And we would have these little bottles of salt. And we still tomatoes, man, and we would just go running around, stealing tomatoes and running down the street. And then we finally get away from the yard and we get to a clearing where we can just walk and just salt up those tomatoes and eat them. And then we go to the next yard, man. That was a big thing for us. Then the next big thing we used to do was climb cherry trees. Well, guess who had to do that? The chump. <laughs> yeah, me, the chump. I was the youngest of all. It would be me and my brothers and some of the neighborhood kids, uh, kids, the friends, you know, and I would be the one they make to climb the tree and, and, and fill up their bags, man. So one night, we're, we're in this yard, you know, it's dark, and they had me go up and climb the tree, and I was actually successful for a while. I think I got about three bags full of cherries, and I would drop the bag down, you know, and then they would, you know, toss up the other bag and I would fill it up up until the point where we heard some guy come out of the come out of a door and say hey what you doing get out of my tree and I mean my brothers and my friends scattered man they left me in the tree man they left me in the tree man I hear this guy standing out there hollering 
Get out of here, man. Get out of that tree. And my, by this time, man, I, I was shaking so much that you can, eat, you can actually hear the leaves. I was shaking so bad, man, the leaves were making noise. The branches. So I had no choice, man, because this guy was not leaving the front door. But had I known, this man had a shotgun. No, true story, man. I'm true story. This guy had a shotgun. And he said, get out of that tree. I'm going to shoot. And, man, I'm going to tell you right now. My little mind said, you know what, dude? You know what, chump? <laughs> you know, you ain't going to be no chump no more after this. But what you got to do right now, you got to get out of this tree, man, or else he's going to make you a cherry. <laughs> you know, split your booty in half, man, with the one of them big old shotgun shells. So, anyways, I just said, what the heck, man? I got to get out of here. So I ain't got no choice. I can't stay in the tree. So I jumped down. I start running. And all of a sudden, this dude actually took a shot at me. I was on, I was barely 10 years old, barely. I mean, I think I was just pushing 10 from nine, you know? And I swear to you, man, this guy took a shot at me running. And I know he missed me. And when I turned my head to see if he was still coming after me, I could see the garage door across the alley from the yard that I was in the tree, had a huge hole in the garage door. I was like, whoa, man, this dude actually took a shot at me. And if that would have hit me, I would have been dead, man. No doubt. That garage door had a hole in the size of a plate, you know? And uh, I kept running, man. And I got back to my brothers and my friends, man, finally caught up to them somewhere, almost back to the house where they were. They just kept running. They left me, man. They just left me. They didn't care. They, it was like <laughs> every man for themselves. I was so mad. And I went back to them and told the man, you, you, know, you guys left me standing in the tree. You know, I'm not going to do this no more. I'm done mad. I was so mad. I was like, you, man, how could you guys do that? Can you leave me, just leave me alone there, man, with this man? You know what I mean? And it's like uh, we would do mischievous stuff like that. I remember one time, there was a, I'm not really sure if I can really recall, you know, this guy's store name, but I think it was Blockasins, Blockas, Blockasins or something. I mean, some of my family back east can probably correct me on this, but I'm just going to go with that name. But this guy was an old guy, bless his heart. At that time, he was probably somewhere 80-something years old. And, and this man had a candy shop, man, full of chocolates and fudge and you name it. And we would go down there, man. And it would be about five or six of us, man. And we would all stand at the counter. And we, we'd go, uh, uh, Mr. Blockerson, uh, what is that right there? And he look, he, you know, he's so old, he's trying, oh, well, what is that? Well, uh, which one do you want? Oh, no, 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 not that one. Not that one. Th this one over here. And then one of the other guys would say, oh, no, no, Mr. Blockerson, we're talking about this one here. He, oh, oh, he keep, we have him going back and forth from the counter. Meanwhile, what we would do one by one, we had somebody, he had, he had these chocolate rabbits that were out in the open, you know, lined up. <laughs> and one of us guys would have our hands be standing against the, the counter with the chocolate rabbits. And as the other guys are confusing this old man, <laughs> one of us would be standing against the chocolate case with our hands behind our back. And then one by one, the guys standing at the counter confusing them, they would walk away and I would be, Either I or somebody else would be grabbing the chocolates from behind or with their hand and passing them off to him as they walk out the door. 
by the time we got to the last person confusing Mr. Blockison at the counter where he was, everybody else was gone and so was his chocolate rabbits. And he would look up and say, oh my God, oh my, where, oh my God, get out of here, oh my God. This man, he finally found out, man, that we had his whole rabbit chocolate counter empty. <laughs> man, we were gone, man. Like we were, we were empty. Out. And I don't, I mean, you know what, man? We were kids, man. We were mischievous, man, and we were like, you know, you know, that's just how we did things. I think there's a lot of kids that just, you know, just what you do, you know. Uh, but as I look back, man, I was, I just think that was a kind of a cruel thing to do to that that old guy, man, because uh, we had him all twisted, man. <laughs> I mean, Mister Blockinson, what, what what is this pizza candy right here? Oh, oh, what what are you talking about? Which one? Oh, no, 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 not that one. This one over here. Uh, wait, 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 I can't see. Which one are you talking? No, no, Mr. Blockerson over here. We, we, we're talking about this one. We had that man twisted, man. <laughs> he was twisted, man. He didn't know. He didn't know what was going on, man. And I mean, at the same time, man, his his rabbits, his chocolate rabbits were getting emptied out, man. <laughs> well, that was some of the fun stuff we did. Oh, we also used to. Um, one of our favorite things to do was play football in the snow. You know, back east it snowed, so that was a treat for us. You know, and I'm telling you these things because. We did have some of a somewhat of a you know childhood around music, you know, because I know some some childhood you know kids that are you know in the music business, especially when there's families, you know, sometimes you don't even get a chance to even be a kid, like you know, like the Jacksons, you know, you know. So in some ways we were similar to that, but you know we did have somewhat of a childhood, and some of the things that we used to do, like I said, we used to go play football in the snow. And that was great, you know. Of course, around being musicians, we had to go to school, you know. So uh, I remember one time, man, uh, in in elementary school, for some reason I got in trouble. And so the principal took it upon himself to give me a spanking with a wooden paddle. Now, see, back in those days, that was the thing. You know, the principals, to punish you, they would they would – actually give you a spanking with wood paddle or, or, you know, or a ruler or something like that. Well, this, this principal happened to spank me way too hard. And I went back home and told my dad, and that's something you don't do. <laughs> because my dad was the type of guy that, you know, he'd knock you out and then ask questions afterwards. Well, lo and behold, that's all my dad needed to hear is that this principal took upon himself to give me a hard spanking with a hard wooden paddle and left marks on me, on my behind. So my dad went down there and needless to say, the principal uh, never did that again. <laughs> you know, my dad was just one of those types of people. You know, he was hard on all, all kind of levels. You know, my, my dad, you know, came from the old school. <laughs> you know, those guys didn't, didn't ask a whole lot of questions about nothing, man. They just got down with it, <laughs> you know. And they dealt with the situation, you know. So that's how he dealt with us in music, man. You know, my dad was not one to fool around about his music, man. You know, I mean, I mean, and I can appreciate that, you know. As I'm in my, you know, you know, more older years of, of life and, and having played music, you know, I can appreciate some of the things that I couldn't appreciate back then, you know. So we had a lot of rehearsing and a lot of playing around the, the area. And at this time, I was like 
10 years old and, uh, you know, at some point my dad, you know, decided to move us to California, you know, but I'm not sure if it was really his idea to move here to California because that's where we're living now. But he was on vacation for two weeks and he thought it would be a good idea. Um, well, let me come back to that. Let me, let me, let me come back to it. Let me just tell you one other story about back East before I get into the, uh, you know, the California thing. We actually went up to New York City. Now, a lot of you don't know, I'm sure, that we actually opened for the Rolling Stones up in New York City, you know. And uh, that, was, that was kind of a really treat. I was only 10 years old. And out of that, we uh, got the interest of a record label called Ghetto Records, you know, Ghetto. And that was kind of a cool name. We thought of Ghetto Records, you know, like the Ghetto. <coughs> So anyways, we're in this office at Ghetto Records in New York. <laughs> and I'm 10 years old, so now I'm kind of, I'm kind of streetwise for a little 10-year-old guy because we've been around the block playing music with my dad, you know, and bringing around a lot of older people, man, and learning things the fast way. So we're sitting in this office at Ghetto Records, and they want to sign us, okay? And of course, Pops is taking care of all the signing and that kind of stuff. But what intrigues me to this day it makes me laugh, most of all, because I'm really sure that, you know, the record company executives must have been laughing their asses off, man. <laughs> they must have been laughing their asses off. Had to be. Because whatever my dad signed, and, and, and now, now, now get this now, my dad wasn't really no fool about any of that stuff, you know, but, you know, whatever it is that, you know, got the signature to do this song. I believe the song was School Is In, I believe. My brothers can probably correct me, you know, I'm just going by memory right now, folks. No, this is just like spontaneous podcast, man. Whatever comes out that I can remember is what you get. So if I got some names and dates and places wrong, we'll, we'll fix that later on. But for now, I'll just take the story for what it is because it's real. So anyways, I'm sitting here today thinking about this ghetto records deal. And I'm all of 10 years old at the time. My brothers are teenagers, young teenagers. And one of the executives goes to us, you know, the executive asks the kids, us. So what do you guys want out of the deal? What do we say? Mini bikes. We want mini bikes. <laughs> Can you imagine that? Mini bikes. Now, these guys, man, executives had to be laughing. Like I said, they're asses off man these kids just want mini bikes <laughs> they just want more oh my god and the executive said oh yeah we can get you we'll get you mini bikes yeah we'll get you five mini bikes we'll get you mini bikes that's what we needed man that's what we wanted we was all about mini bikes man and i mean we're serious man we didn't think about hey dude you know we want uh like uh 14 percent Royalties, man, we want publishing, we want songwriters, okay? We want all that. No, we want mini bikes. God darn it. You make sure you get us mini bikes out of this deal. And we, we got to rap. <laughs> Can you believe that, man? To this day, I honestly laugh at that every day because I had to put myself in the executive's position to say, man, that must have been the easiest laughable, sensible, <laughs> senseless record signing, <laughs> you know, because well, I'm, I'm pretty sure that they had everything, 
in their favor, man. And all they had to do is produce five mini bikes for the kids. <laughs> Y'all swallow that one. But anyways, not too long after that, you know, the record came out, but it didn't do anything, man. You know, it didn't do anything, man. You know, needless, needless to say, that was like a one-time deal with that, you know, but that's one of the things that I really, to this day, it sticks in my mind. It was just ridiculous. I just had to, in my own head, I had to say, how ridiculous did that look to them executives? It had to be. It had to look ridiculous. They had to laugh. I would have. So anyways, sometime after that, my dad, you know, he was working at the steel mill, like I said earlier. And something told him, hey, you know what? You know, because Pittsburgh was cool and all that, but it didn't have a lot of opportunity musically, you know? I mean, really, you know? And, you know, yeah, you can go play around Pittsburgh and you do this and that and that kind of stuff. And even my dad had songs on the radio with Whammo in Pittsburgh. You know, but, you know, I think both my father and my mother thought it would best while he's on his two-week vacation, you know, to move us out to California, you know. And like I say, I, I keep saying move. I shouldn't really say move. I, would, I would probably should use the term go see if it's a place that you want to move by way of going there for his two-week vacation and get a chance to, you know, sniff it out and see, you know, what the music scene is like. And then if it's cool, we make a move. Well, anyways, you know, fast forward to driving to California. and We get out here in California, and, you know, we... Stopped in L.A., I believe is where we first ended up down there, staying with a few relatives down there, you know. And uh, the Garrett family, you know, Donna Garrett, you know, and and all my wonderful cousins there, Andy and Gary, Ernest. And, man, we had a ball, man, just being around those kids, man, because they were like we were finally around some other kids, you know, there were cousins of ours that we hadn't met or seen for longs, you know, you know, most of our life, actually, you know. So we hung out with them down there, and, they, you know, we stayed with them, you know, for a little bit. And it was beautiful to be around, and they, hospitality was, you know, just wonderful to be with them. And then somehow we ended up going to uh, uh, San Francisco for a couple of days. And we were peeping things out in San Francisco, and we noticed that there were people, you know, performing on the sidewalk. You know, so we ended up, you know, pulling out my drums, you know, and then my dad pulled out a cowbell, and my brothers had these really cool dance steps, and Ron pulled out some maracas, and we took a shot at it, man, and it was very successful, man. So we started playing on the street for a minute, you know, and then uh, we got into like this, you know, the second week of our, you know, our stay, and we decided not to go back. So we ended up playing on the street, you know, for a while, and uh, we just never came back home, <laughs> you know. I mean, I mean, I can't even tell you what happened with my dad's job, but we just came out to California for two weeks, ended up, and now it's what forty-five years later, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But anyways, we did this thing on the street, you know, kind of a street show that we called the Street Thing. Yeah, T-H-A-N-G, Street Thang. You can actually find it on the internet, look it up YouTube, and you can probably even purchase it somewhere. We actually have an album called The Street Thang. That's right, The Street Thang. And actually the cover of that was the Mike Douglas show because their producer saw us playing at the wharf 
Fishman's Wharf, San Francisco, and they asked us to be on a show. So if you look at the street thing, and you find that cover and that album on the internet, you'll see us uh, performing on some steps, which are the Aquatic Park steps right there at Fisherman's Wharf, right there by the water. That's where the show was in 1974. And we made an album out of that. But anyways, we did the thing, you know, the street thing for a while, and we became very popular, man. I mean, you know, very popular. You know, but, you know, we, we you know, had to make a decision whether we was going to be doing that or we were going to be trying to play in clubs or trying to get in that kind of situation. So we ended up going to Las Vegas. So we go to Las Vegas, okay? We get up to Las Vegas, and we were running out of money, you know? And we needed gas, and we had a van. You know, I actually had a, ni- a brand-new nice van that we, you know, my father purchased before we came to California. But, you know, our money was running short, even though we were playing on the street, but, you know, we had to eat and stuff. And, and by the way, we were sleeping in our van and everything, you know, all this time, except for the stay at my cousin's house in L.A., Aside from that, we were sleeping in a van. So we went to Las Vegas, and we ended up landing a gig at some club. I can't remember the name of the club, you know. And uh, But prior to that, because we were running out of money, we ended up finding some community, you know, kind of a help uh, shelter type of a thing. And they let us stay there. And I can tell you right now, we, here we are, seven members of the family in this big gymnasium with these cots on the floor with about 50 or 60 families sleeping on the floor. And we were one of the families sleeping on the floor in this place in Las Vegas. And I can remember for lunch, they gave everybody a brown paper bag and they had a bologna sandwich in it and some milk. And we ended up staying in this shelter for about two nights until we found this gig. So we do this gig in Las Vegas. And when it was time to get paid, we're we're looking around for the owner. You know, this brother, man. You know, this brother that hired us. And we couldn't find him. So somewhere in another, my dad happened to go out in the parking lot and here this dude is getting in his car to try to take off with the money that he's supposed to give us for the gig. So here we are. My dad goes and ushers us all into the van. We jump in the van, and, you know, we still got our equipment at the club and everything, man. <laughs> we jump in the van, man, and we're chasing this dude down the freeway, man, for our money, man, until we finally caught up to him. And, he, you know, like I said, my dad was not one to play around with. So, you know, <laughs> without saying, you know, he got the money back. And so with that money, we end up coming back to San Francisco. So anyways, we get back to San Francisco. We got a little bit of money in our pocket. You know, we're able to get gas and food and get us back to San Francisco so we can get back down there and start performing on the street again to, to make money. So we're playing in the street one night, right there on Beach Street, right there by the cable car in San Francisco. That was kind of like our staple spot. And we were popular, man. I'll tell you, we had huge crowds. And back in the, you know, back in the early uh, 70s, that was 1972. Man, you know, it was a whole different Fisherman's Wharf then. There wasn't much happening down by way of the Embarcadero or none of that stuff down there by the wharf. Everything was up there by Ghirardelli and the Beach Street. That was the main thing. It was packed full of people back in that time. And we were a popular, you know, attraction 
we would be making like three or four hundred dollars a day. And now in that in that time, that was like making a thousand a day. Really, back in the, back in the seventies, that's like a thousand dollars a day. Even if you made three hundred dollars, that was a lot of money. It went a long way. So one time we're playing out there, and we're happy because we made it. It was a nice. I think it was like a five hundred dollar day, if I can remember. So we packed up our stuff, you know, everything. You know, we're carrying drums and piece, you know. And we, my dad had the kitty box, which we call, you know, the tip box. He had the tip box, you know. And my brothers had a couple of the, you know, the drum stands and cymbals and stuff. And we're walking back to our van, and, and we look around and we say, man, wh where the hell's the van? <laughs> Can you imagine that, man? Like, and it's already getting dark, man. You know, it's like the van's gone. And we're like, what the hell? And it wasn't even about meters because there wasn't no meter you know, at that time. It was just, you know, a street where you can park. But our van was gone. So we're freaking out about that. Now you got to remember something, we, that we lived in the van. So you got to put that in your head. We lived in the van. So now home is gone. So we're like saying, man, they towed the van, but why? So anyways, Pops went and found out that the van was actually repossessed. Yep, they repossessed our van. Why did they do that? Well, here's something that we didn't know because we weren't keeping up on what was happening back home, back in Pennsylvania. Well, they had a mail strike. And my dad had sent two payments for the van in advance. So he would already have to, you know, two payments done. We had to worry about it for a couple of months. But they never got it because they had a strike. And no mail was being delivered. So the company that my dad purchased the van from never received the payment. So they put out a repossession order. And that's what they did. And no matter how much talking my dad and my parents did, you know, try to recover this van, they would not give it back. Nor would they give us back our property. We had everything that we lived in and everything that we lived with was in that van. <laughs> so here we are. We're in San Francisco at night with nowhere to go. So, because it was so late at night at that point in time, after all the phone calls and trying to figure out where this is at and the truck is at and trying to get a hold of somebody, you know, and that kind of thing like that, you know, we ended up sleeping under, under some steps, you know. And uh, I have to say that it was probably for me, you know, certainly worse than the shelter in Las Vegas, I mean, we were sleeping under steps, you know, for that night. A whole family freezing outside under some steps until the next day, till we can go and walk with our equipment to go find a motel room to stay in. And I can tell you right now, you know, that that was something to <laughs> i mean i mean you know if you've ever slept outside 
then you'll know what I'm talking about. It's not, it's not really, you know, there's no peace of mind. Left, trust me. I mean, you think you're going to get a good sleep? You don't. And I feel sorry for the homeless people out there that do that on a regular basis because I know what it's about. It's not safe. It's not pleasant. It's very scary. You know, especially being a kid, it's super scary, even, even with your parents there, you know. So, but we made it through. And uh, we actually uh, got a motel room. And uh, that's where we stayed for a year until we moved uh, out of that into Daly City. So that, my friends, all my Facebook friends and YouTube friends and people around the world that don't know me and all my friends that do know me, I will continue the next podcast. We're going to take it from the motel room on to working the Fisherman's Wharf for the next eight years as street artists on into where we're at today with the Les Edwin show and how I got there and all the things and the accolades that we have that we know about and some of the setbacks and some of the tragedies and things that have happened, all kind of good things to hear about. Some of you folks haven't had a chance to really hear me talk. And I know some of you folks don't get a chance to hear me talk or even know anything about what I do or anything about my family, well, here's your chance. I'm going to do this podcast. This is part one. And as I go down the road with this podcast, I hope I can garner a lot of followers, tell your friends about it, tell them to check it out, forward, forward and share it to them. Share it. That's right. Share it to your friends. Tell the friends that have friends to let them know about to listen to my podcast here, the Less Edwin Show podcast. Or we can just call it Les Edwin's Podcast or Les Edwin's Talks or the history of Les Edwin's or whatever it's going to be called. It's going to be really cool, man. That's right. I'm going to talk to you and let you know the story behind the story that you don't know. Okay? So we're going to take it from the next podcast. We're going to run it in to from the motel on down to years to come from there and it's going to be interesting folks because there's a lot of cool things that happened in all these years with me and my family that you really want to check out and as i go along i'm gonna start bringing in some guests and let them be interviewed and tell you some of their stories and some things of some people that we've been around and some of the musicians i know that have been doing things as long as i've been doing them and I uh, have some great stories. So stay tuned, folks. You all check out my podcast, baby. Les Edwins right here. Don't forget to come see me down at Fisherman's Wharf. A lot of you know that I perform down there. And if you want to know the schedule, because I perform on the street doing my own solo drum show over tracks, singing and playing drums live. That's right. I sing and I play drums live over tracks at Fisherman's Wharf. Go to San Francisco Street Performers. You can look at that and Google it, and you'll find that the Port of San Francisco's website. That's right, Port of San Francisco handles it. Great bunch of people, man. I really appreciate them letting me in the program. Go check it out and get on their website, and they'll have a schedule, and you can download the schedule, and you can see what my performance schedule is. Just look for the Les Edwins uh, 
Les Edwin's show, or I might just say Les Edwin's, and I'll show you the days and times I'm playing. <coughs> Excuse me. And, you know, sometimes I stick to the schedule. Sometimes I don't. It depends on what's going on, you know, any given day. I may show up and I may not, you know, but you can always get me on Facebook, Les Edwin's, and just ask me, inbox me, and say, hey, man, you going to be playing today? Because I see you're on schedule, man, you know, and I'll let you know. But like I said, stick around for the next episode, baby, the podcast, right? You know, that's right. I don't know what I'm doing, man. I don't, it don't matter, man. I'm just going to talk to you guys the way I talk to you in person and let you get a feel for what's been going on in my life, okay? Because it's really cool and interesting, okay? I'll get back at you guys. Stay tuned, all right? Peace out.